Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Cathy Molohan, and we're going to talk about Parkinson's disease. Hi, Cathy. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Hi, Sivan. Thank you so much for having me along. I'm doing very well. A sunny day in Frankfurt for a change. So, yeah, puts me in a good mood looking out at the autumn colors in front of my window. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the sun can change your mood very quickly. Absolutely. The sun comes out and suddenly the world is a different place. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, as our listeners know, I love starting with a song. So, would you be able to tell us which song you chose and why? Okay, so the song I chose is The Foo Fighters, The Best of You. And when you told me that that would be something you'd be asking, it was the song that immediately came to mind. Um, I love to dance to that song with one of my best friends in Hamburg after a glass or two of wine. <laughs> it's a really energetic song. And yeah. I guess the lyrics to a certain extent mean something to me on my Parkinson's journey as well. Because the song talks about the best of you. And I guess that's what I try to to make of this yeah, what would you call it? This journey or this curse of Parkinson's disease. Um, to say, okay, I'm going to bring out the best in me no matter what the disease yeah, has in store for me when I can. So, yeah, that's why The Best of You is my chosen song. Yeah, that's a very positive way of looking at it. Um, although you called it a curse, which I, I yeah, maybe we, we need to talk about that a bit more. Uh, but it's the second time we have Foo Fighters selected uh, on the show. So um, interesting. Go, Foo Fighters. <laughs> yes, I, I really like uh, Foo Fighters as well. So I'm all for it. Uh, so starting today, um, talking about Parkinson's disease, uh, would you be able to explain how you realized that something wasn't right and what made you go to the doctors and get checked? Sure. Well, actually, in the beginning, I wasn't worried at all. My husband said to me when we were going for a walk and holding hands, he said, it feels like there's kind of electricity running through your fingers. Not a tremor so much, but yeah, just something different. He said, maybe you should just mention it to your doctor. So at some stage, I had a bit of a cold, went to my GP and said, oh, by the way, I've got this tremor or this yeah, feeling in my hand. Mm-hmm. And she got me to do a couple of simple exercises. And then she got this worried look on her face and said, I don't mean to worry you, but maybe you should see a neurologist. And I think don't worry and see a neurologist in one sentence doesn't really work. No, it doesn't. So, <laughs> from that moment on, I was indeed a bit concerned, but still kind of assumed everything would be okay. I mean, I was quite young at that stage. I was 38. I just had my 
second child. I think he was two years old at the time. I was working full time. I was in the middle of things. So I got an appointment with the neurologist fairly quickly. Um, and I'll never forget that. It was a Friday afternoon and he did a few more tests, asked a few questions. And then he said, well, it's Parkinson's or a brain tumor. Come back on Monday. We'll do some more tests. Wow. And then we should know, have a good weekend. <laughs> yeah, so I think zero points for patient-doctor communication there. Um, yeah, so the weekend wasn't great, as you can imagine. And I guess the only favor he did me was by throwing brain tumor into the mix. Parkinson's almost came as a relief. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to die in two months of a brain tumor. Yeah. Um, I can deal with that. Yeah, but that was kind of the, I was in a way I was lucky because I was diagnosed fast. Yeah. A lot of people with PD spend a lot of time, you know, if they don't have a tremor, they might have rather stiff shoulder or something. And they get treated by orthopedic doctors first. And don't realize it's actually a neurological problem. So from that point of view, I was lucky that I was, yeah, that I didn't have to go to five different doctors over the course of two years. But I could have lived without the abrupt. <laughs> yeah. <of> <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, it's not unusual to hear that uh, the, the news about the diagnosis are not given in the best way possible and, mm -hmm. and you get no support around it. Uh, but it's interesting what you just said because PD, uh, unfortunately, is quite uh, a common um, disease uh, to get later on in, in life. Uh, but I thought the diagnosis would be straightforward. And in your experience, it sounds like it was, but you're saying that others don't necessarily have the same experience. That's right. Well, one of the major problems is there's no biomarker for Parkinson's. So in other words, you can't do like a blood test like you do for diabetes. Mm -hmm. You drink glucose, you do a blood test and you know if you have diabetes or not. And there's no simple, well, there is basically no test at all for Parkinson's disease, which makes diagnosis difficult. And it makes clinical trials difficult because if you don't know where you are, it's impossible to measure where you're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. So clinical trials have to rely on subjective questionnaires rather than, you know, just taking blood or taking a saliva sample or whatever other methods there are of, you know, getting biomarkers. So that's a, a big problem in the field of research for Parkinson's. Yeah, I can imagine. And it must lead to need very long trials as well to demonstrate reduction in disease progression. Right, exactly. So, like I say, you're looking at, you need a large cohort of people because you've got such a wide range of symptoms as well. That's that's a further 
problem with the disease that I would like to point out. You know, a lot of people think Parkinson's is a tremor. And yes, tremor dominance is very much a part of it, but there are tons of other symptoms. And a lot of people never get a tremor or get a tremor late in the disease. But people might be stiff, slow to move, um, have depression, have constipation, have sleep issues. And so when you're looking at clinical trials, you have to decide which endpoint are you trying to influence are you try are you targeting the tremor yeah. are you targeting slowness are you trying to target progression mm-hmm. and how do you measure that so without meaning to sound discouraging it makes yeah clinical trials quite a challenge for parkinson's yeah yeah or maybe we'll talk a bit more about clinical trials in a bit uh, so going back to your your journey so realizing you have parkinson's disease how how did you feel about that well like i say it was very abrupt i was in the middle of life (laughs) young kids marriage work and suddenly i had this diagnosis and in the beginning you're left very much alone at, at least i found by my doctor who didn't mean it badly, but who never thought to, you know, refer me to a support group, never thought to suggest exercise, which is the only thing, by the way, known to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease is regular exercise. Nobody told me that, which was the case of here, your tablets, take those, come back and in six months, you know, keep calm and take your meds. And so I guess I did what everybody does in that situation, or at least most people these days. And I started to Google and look and get information slowly but surely. And yeah, that led me on a journey to meet some very wonderful people. The Parkinson's community is extremely welcoming, inclusive, helpful, supportive. Um, and I think we get from the community what we should be getting from our doctors and clinicians, but don't, namely information and support. So when I researched the medicine that is classically prescribed for Parkinson's, I found out that it has been around since 1961. Now, 1961 is when the Berlin Wall was built. (laughs) It's when Kennedy said he planned to put a man on the moon. And, you know, man on the moon worked within a decade. The Berlin Wall fortunately fell, what, 30 years ago. But we're still looking at levodopa as the gold standard of Parkinson's medication. And, you know, that's where I get impatient. That's where I say, what's taking so long? Surely there must be something more out there, something better that can slow progression of this disease. We can do so much mm-hmm. in this world. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that makes me a bit mad and impatient. Well, yeah, I can imagine. And I completely agree with you. 
So do you, because you mentioned when you uh, went to the doctors, they told you to take tablets. Was it mm. L-Dopa already? No, no, they didn't start me on L-Dopa straight away. They started me on what are called agonists, okay. which kind of pretend to be dopamine in layman's mm. terms. Now, what nobody tells you or very few doctors tell you about the agonists is that they can cause serious psychological side effects. Okay. Um, they can cause addictions, gambling, shopping addiction, sex addiction. Really? Now, I was lucky I didn't have that. It didn't gamble our house away. Yeah. Um, but I shouldn't laugh because people have had that problem. And what I did notice is a kind of a, how should I put it? I think it's called hobbyism. So getting really focused on one thing and kind of, yeah, just really honing in on one thing and not being able to let it go. So the agonists are, you know, useful to delay the start of DOPA for a while, mm -hmm. but really need to be taken with caution. And I would say to anybody who's taking them, ask somebody who knows you well to let you know if they notice changes in behavior okay. because you yourself might notice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's not communicated enough by the medical community. Yeah. So, but you know, taking the agonist, I think kept me off DOPA for, I'm trying to remember maybe four or five years even. Yeah. Um, which is not a bad thing because if you take too much dopa for too long, you get side effects that are almost more annoying than the disease itself. Really? Um, okay. What kind of side effects? Um, they're called dyskinesia, so involuntary movement. It's what, if, if anybody knows Michael J. Fox, mm -hmm. who is a hero of the Parkinson's community, if you watch him on video, you'll see he's kind of writhing. He's not able to stop kind of bobbing around. Yeah. And that's a side effect of L-Dopa, um, as opposed to of Parkinson's itself. Yeah. Okay, so are you on L-Dopa at the moment? I am on L-Dopa, but I'm on quite a low dose because... Um, just to add to the fun and games of having Parkinson's, when I did more research on the options on the table, I came up with a great procedure called deep brain stimulation, which is an operation I had, let me think, three years ago now, in the middle of COVID. So in May 2020, I had a procedure called deep brain stimulation where Basically, they drill two holes in your head and insert electrodes. Um, and they do all of that while you're awake. Wow. So it really is lots of fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I have to say it's really given me a new lease of life. It controls the tremor quite well. It's not gone, but it's much better under control, especially in my hands which means I can actually go to the bar and carry two glasses of wine down to a table as opposed to having to go up twice yeah. because my hand was shaking so much. 
Um, so yeah, that was a, a new lease of life for me in in 2020. How did you make that decision? Because I, I personally, if I was contemplating brain surgery, I feel like it would make it would make the different the decisions are very difficult to make, and, and I imagine that there's a lot that you need to look into first to to make sure that you want to go ahead with it. Strangely, it wasn't too difficult a decision. So I knew it was kind of out there as an option. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a bit of a safety net. So my thinking was, as the disease progresses, hopefully I'll qualify for DBS and can get that as kind of a, a bridge to buy me more time. So I was quite pragmatic about it, which doesn't mean I wasn't scared on the day. Of course, I was slightly <laughs> more than slightly nervous, yeah. but I had a great team of doctors. I, I had the operation in Lübeck in Germany and I chose the team based on yeah, the reputation, the amount of these surgeries they do every year, because okay. you kind of want the team to be well practiced if they're drilling a hole in your, in your head. And also, though, on the personal yeah, feeling I had with these doctors, they were just, they were human beings. They were just surgeons. Yeah. And that was very important to me. So they gave me a good feeling. They said, listen, for you, this is literally brain surgery. This is a huge deal for us. It's routine. Yeah. And that kind of comforted me. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I just went ahead and and did it. Friends tend to call me an eternal optimist. And I guess that optimism helped me yeah. to steer away from thoughts that are too dark and terrible. And how does it feel like the surgery? You said you I imagine you need to be conscious for certain reasons. So yeah, how That's does it right. feel? So, Why do you need to, to remain conscious? Well, they, they can do it under full anesthetic, but they prefer you to be awake because when they insert the electrodes into your brain, um, they need to know that they haven't hit an, an important center like the speech center. Okay. Um, so they get you to talk while they're inserting the electrodes. They're asking you questions getting you to recite the days of the week or whatever mm -hmm. to make sure they haven't impaired your speech and they get you to move your hands to make sure that your movement is intact. Mm -hmm. And they found the sweet spot that they're looking for. Okay. And for me, in a way, it was almost, I mean, it's no fun being awake for brain surgery. And I do remember the sound of the drill and what else do I remember? I remember having a super dry mouth, just little things like that and being quite uncomfortable because your head is literally screwed onto a, a halo to stop you moving. Okay. But at the same time, I found it comforting to know that I would be able to signal that everything was okay or was not okay while they were doing it as opposed to waking up and thinking, oh God, can I still speak? Mm -hmm. Can I still 
you know, am I, am I okay? I, I prefer it having the the check done while they're there, while they could still control things, I suppose. Um, so, and they, of course, they give you plenty of sedatives. So you're not, you're awake, but you're not fully aware. Um, yeah, because yeah. the operation is quite long. It's several hours, but I had no feeling for time. So I would say to anybody who's considering it, don't be too scared of the procedure itself. It goes goes by quickly and you wake up feeling quite well, in fact. I've had other operations where you wake up and you go like, God, I feel awful, I can't move. And funnily enough, with brain surgery, there's I didn't need many pain meds. I was up walking the next day, meeting wow. friends outside because of COVID um, with the big bandage around my head, but walking and talking and feeling quite well. So, yeah. yeah. And did, was the impact immediate? Yes, it was wonderful. So there are differences between the way they do it in Europe and in the US. In the US, they put in the electrodes but they wait a couple of weeks before turning on the device. And in Europe, I'm not quite sure why. And in Europe, they turn it on immediately. So once I was off the intensive care ward after one day, the doctor came along literally with a laptop and said, right, let's get you connected. <laughs> and opened up his laptop and literally connected to the electrodes in my brain and turned on the the power and he had me holding up my hand which was shaking very badly because i was off all medication and he turned on the the power and the shake just stopped immediately and it was pretty it was pretty cool that must be an amazing feeling and and then yeah straight away you must be thinking that the the surgery was well worth it exactly exactly yeah. when you're lying there thinking god i've had brain surgery did it work how will how will i be doing when he turns it on then he turns it on and turns it up slowly and you can feel kind of a tingling in your arms and legs mm -hmm. and then suddenly the shake stops when he finds the the right settings and yeah it's pretty miraculous and do you is it on constantly then it's on constantly um i get it adjusted every it depends every six to 12 months i kind of go and get it turned up a notch okay. and i can only emphasize that you really need a doctor who knows what he's doing there because you it's not just a case of turning it up or down. You can, uh, I don't quite understand the physics of it, but there are numerous points on the electrodes that can be adjusted in different ways. So you need somebody who will turn one of those points to whatever, 0.8, and then the next one to 1.3, and the next one to 2.5. Uh, okay. And it has to be ideal for you. And if they get it wrong, it's a, it's a horrible feeling because 
I remember once I was sitting there and he turned to some setting up too high and my whole one side of my face just started pulling like I was having a stroke. Mm. It was really quite unpleasant. Yeah. And then he looks at me and goes, oh, sorry, that wasn't so good, was it? And turns it back, back again and I'm fine. I'm like, no, that wasn't great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's wow. try a different setting. Yeah. Yeah, so bit of a weird feeling, very much science fiction for us as lay people. Yeah. But, it's, yeah. It's crazy because I've uh, I discovered that when I first heard you uh, explain this procedure. And I find it incredible that we can do things like this. Absolutely. And, and it's, they've gone one step further now. There's a man with Parkinson's who's just had a spinal implant of some kind, which means he can walk better again. So one of the issues with Parkinson's is that your gait, your walk mm -hmm. can change. And kind of worst case scenario, you get this, what's called freezing. So you might be standing at the side of the road, you want to cross the road and you literally can't move your feet. Your brain just is not communicating with your feet, yeah. which is, yeah, scary, obviously, um, and results in a lot of falls as well. Falling is one of the main issues for people with Parkinson's. And I just read about a guy who's had a spinal implant and who can walk around the lake in his hometown for the first time in years. Um, so, yeah. Progress is being made on that front. Um, although I must say, I would love to see progress being made on the progression front as well. In other words, having something that will slow progression. Yeah. Because at the moment, all of these surgical and medical interventions we have only mask the symptoms. They don't in any way change the course of the disease itself. So we need a game changer. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a bit more about clinical trials then, because we, we started talking about that, uh, but went back to, to the symptoms and procedures. Are you actively looking to see if there's any clinical trials you could enroll into, or do you keep an eye on, on research? I keep an eye on research very actively, absolutely. And I'm registered on a couple of clinical sites, clinical kind of trial finder sites. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that I've had DBS rules me out for most trials um, because for the research, I've got a different baseline, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, unfortunately, it kind of rules me out for interventional studies, in other words, for for things where they're actually trying to change the course of the disease. Yeah. Um, so what I do do and can do is things like wearables. So it's um, becoming quite common now to study the symptoms of Parkinson's disease using a watch, for example. Mm -hmm. I know one of the big advantages of the new digital world we live in yeah. that we can track tremor we can track gait by wearing a watch and that feeds information into a clinical trial that will tell people 
tell the the people at least how I'm progressing. So in other words, we're looking at establishing digital biomarkers. As I said before, there are no blood tests, et cetera, for Parkinson's. So we have to get creative. And what we need to happen is that the health authorities who regulate clinical trials recognize digital biomarkers as valid biomarkers for the disease because they're a bit <laughs> a bit slow to catch up there. And if you ask me, it's so obvious that it's better to rely on the reading of a, of a watch mm-hmm. than to rely on me saying, oh, today I feel, you know, three on a scale of one to 10, tomorrow I feel four. Yeah. It's completely subjective, which makes, as I said before, measuring trials very difficult. So I think digital wearables will at least help us to establish better endpoints for trials. Yeah, and and ideally, because what you said at the beginning is that everyone experiences different symptoms, and some people have tremors, others don't to start with, at least. So it feels like we should try and find a way to measure a baseline per patient and then measure the progression or the lack of per patient um, rather than because I, I know like I read uh, clinical protocols and and the the biomarkers or the tests or the patient reported outcomes are generic in a way they're not patient specific so having this patient specific way of measuring the progression or lack of through wearables could be a really good way of advancing the the measure of of disease progression absolutely Sylvain you've You've touched on something that I'm very passionate about, which is essentially personalized medicine. So taking into account each person's gender for a start. I mean, gender has been ignored in clinical trials or even worse, women have actually been ruled out of taking part in clinical trials for many, many years. Yeah. Um, I think it was only in 1993 that women were actually permitted by the FDA in America to take part in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So from gender to the specific type of disease you have, um, your genetic makeup, all of that should be playing a role. We should be looking at each individual. Um, they call Parkinson's the snowflake disease because just like no two snowflakes are alike, no two Parkinson's patients are alike. I mean, you could you could put me in a room with 10 Parkinson's patients and we would all have such different symptoms. Some people you'd say, oh gosh, they're really not doing well. Other people on the outside would look fine. Yeah. Um, and yet we all have, at least apparently, supposedly we all have the same disease. So we need to be looking very closely at personalized medicine. Otherwise we're forcing everybody onto some kind of fake baseline and then scrambling to find some kind of 
predefined endpoint. And I'm always amazed when I hear of people designing clinical trials who've never actually spoken to a patient before. I mean, this is just beyond me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I do talks for companies that design clinical trials, that run clinical trials, and I often get the feedback, oh, God, that was amazing. You're the first patient we ever talked to. I'm like, what? <sighs> now, that is fortunately yeah. changing. You know, patient centricity, patient advocacy is becoming a lot more center stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm delighted to see that development, but we need more of it. Yeah, 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 I fully agree. And like protocols should be written with patients rather than than just having a protocol that's already approved and then asking for patient feedback because by that time it's too late. Exactly. I mean, just look at very simple examples like you've got a protocol that you want a patient to fill out and people with Parkinson's have very have trouble with their handwriting. They have very small handwriting, almost illegible mm-hmm. a lot of the time, and writing is painful. So you think, fine, we'll get them to fill it out on their iPad computer or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you have a tremor and you're trying to use a mouse, it's also quite difficult. So you know you need to design your protocols so they're easy to fill out for somebody with those challenges. Yeah. And that can be done, but if you don't know about the challenges, you're just going to have a standard questionnaire that is going to be very difficult to, to fill out and will lead to people dropping out of trials. Mm-hmm. And then trials become more expensive, <laughs> harder to run, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So are you aware of any trials that seem promising? Uh, there, there's a lot out there. Um, I'm cautious to say there's something that really excites me. I mean, what is exciting is that we're understanding the genetic component of all diseases better. Um, And we're starting to understand what happens in the brain in Alzheimer's, in Parkinson's a good bit better now. So I think from the point of view of understanding what's happening, we're further along the line than we were 10 years ago. From the point of view of actually doing something about it, I'm not sure if we've got closer. The optimistic side of me likes to think so for sure. Um, There are exciting trials going on with stem stem cell therapy, Mm -hmm. but that's been a buzzword for quite a while now. Possibly all the research put into COVID and mRNA vaccines could have a an interesting push for the Parkinson's community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at the moment there's I don't think there's one there there isn't one big trial at the moment where I say can't wait to see those results. That's going to solve all my problems. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. I'm afraid is not not in the pipeline just yet. No. But so I do believe, sorry to interrupt, just, just one more thing. I do believe that with AI, for example, as well, we can 
make a lot of progress. Um, just to give you an example, I recently had to have an antihistamine infusion for an allergic reaction twice. And I noticed after both infusions, hey, my symptoms are a lot better, like my Parkinson's symptoms. That's funny. And I Googled it and I found that AI had actually found a correlation between antihistamines and relief of Parkinson's symptoms already. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's so much data out there, there's so much knowledge, so much, you know, that we patients also know about our own bodies. We just need people to find those correlations and then to carry out the research. So yeah. there is there is hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting what you just mentioned about AI. Um, I've heard that. I, I can't remember the exact story, but I've heard that someone uh, couldn't find a, or be diagnosed and, and then entered all their symptoms somewhere, maybe chat GPT or something else. And, and AI found a, a diagnosis for them and then it, it appeared to be true. Um, so yeah, you're right. There's so much hope so many things going on like Senangine uh, that you mentioned as well uh, is doing great things in other areas uh, but I guess from your point of view you want it you want to see something on Parkinson's disease specifically well of course you know when you have a specific disease you're impatient for a specific cure and I do believe it's possible I mean when you look at the resources that were thrown at COVID, understandably. Mm -hmm. um, and within a couple of years, we had a vaccine for that. And I think if we, if we have enough political will, um, if politicians realize that Parkinson's as the world's fastest growing neurological disease will cause a huge burden to, to society from a financial perspective, you know, they should be prepared to invest in research. Yeah. And I think political will and financing are two things that are missing or not there enough. And I think if we had those combined with some really great ideas, which there are certainly enough of, yeah. we would be seeing solutions and we would be seeing those solutions faster. Yeah. I fully agree, and I think that's the perfect way to to conclude our discussion. Actually, uh, although, I, yeah, I, I I always have one last question, which I I, I love asking people. Um, what is your happy place? Somewhere oh. where you feel at peace. That's very easy. Beside the sea. Okay. Anywhere in particular or like being um, preferably, by the sea? Well, we think preferably the Atlantic Ocean in Ireland, where it's wild and windy and the sea is all whipped up. So not, not the calm kind of blue glittering Mediterranean, rather a turbulent Atlantic, brisk walk, wind in your face. And then a pint of Guinness in the local pub afterwards. That's definitely 
one of my major yeah go-to places i suppose for when i really want to feel at peace with the world and with myself oh yeah well i uh would happily join you on one of those walks <laughs> and for the pint of guinness as well come, come along <laughs> Well, Cathy, thank you so much. Uh, I, I find it incredible, maybe to, to summarize our discussion or one of the points that like, there's so much that has been done in a way to uh, address Parkinson's disease, but then so little at the same time. Uh, and looking at you, um, like the, the deep brain stimulation is working very well, uh, but at the same time, not really stopping progression. It's really addressing the symptoms. And I think that that's what maybe people need to hear and where research needs to go, uh, as you've really well explained. Right. Uh, uh, I would say to summarize, we just need to shout out loud. We need to demand solutions. And that's why I'm very grateful that there are people like you who create podcasts like this to draw attention to all kinds of conditions. Um, so thank you so much for having me along. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> well, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much, Siva.